Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sarah and I'm Beth. We co-host Paint Suit Politics, a podcast seeking nuance in political conversation. Along the way, we've realized the rest of life is filled with nuance, too. So we come here each week to commemorate the moments in our lives, moments beyond birthdays, weddings, and funerals, that deserve celebration. It's an opportunity to see ourselves in a new season and to reflect on the messiness of living wisely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. Before we get started, we have put together a survey because we desperately want to know what all of you think about our shows, about our social media presences, where you see room for growth, where you have some constructive criticism. We want to hear what you think is what we're saying. And so we have a new annual survey. We're going to put the link in the show notes. And if you could take a few seconds out of your valuable day and fill it out for us, we would be eternally grateful. Today on The Nuanced Life, we want to dedicate this space to commemorating the life of Rachel Held Evans. If you listen to Pantsuit Politics, we talked quite a bit about her passing yesterday. If you are not familiar with Rachel's work, you will be by the end of this episode because we are going to share again an interview that she did with us about her book, Inspired. And this interview was so special to us at the time and will continue to be special to us. Inspired is a wonderful book and such a great reflection of what Rachel Held Evans is so good at, which is taking the rules-based, old-school interpretation of the Bible, church, scripture, and faith, and saying, hey, what if we bring our human brains to this and our hearts and our souls and ask some hard questions and lean into everything that makes us uncomfortable and find a way through it that includes everybody. It's a beautiful book. Her body of work is beautiful. And we are devastated for Rachel's husband and young children and friends and the entire community of people who loved her work as we did that she left us this weekend. The difficult part of somebody like Rachel and her body of work and losing her is it's this weird paradox of it feels like a gift and also the presence of that gift makes the absence even harder. I'm particularly grateful for her children. I lost a friend, another young mother, several years ago, and what I wouldn't give for her children to have hours of her voice on recording and her brilliant thoughts and thousands of words of her pondering and leading everyone into these conversations about the most important things in life. And at the same time, it's so bittersweet because you think she had so much more to say. She had so much more to say. And in some ways, I believe that the impact of Rachel's work is that she will still be talking to us. She will be talking through us instead of to us. But you see the the hashtag because of RHE and you see how many lives she's touched and these conversations that she started and she contributed to 
and that she laid the foundation for, they're going to keep going. And that is just as much a result of her life as if she wrote, you know, 40 more books. But I want to have some every time we talk about it, every time I think about it, every time I write on Instagram and I read somebody else. I want to have some great conclusion, but there is no great conclusion to a loss like this. There's no great takeaway. It sucks. It's awful. I'm so glad she lived. I'm so glad she had this amazing impact. And also, I'm just devastated for her family and for her friends and for all of us. I had big plans to go to Evolving Faith, which she had recently invited us to come speak at, and make this woman my best friend. Like, I had plans. I had a strategy in place. I was ready for lots, lots, lots more Rachel Held Evans in my life. It just, it's, it just sucks. It's just, it's so, I'm filled with such anguish for her friends and for her family and for all of us that she was taken from us so traumatically, so suddenly, and so soon. One of the beautiful things that's happening online, which is where Rachel's church really was, you know, the church mm-hmm. that she pastored was this this group of people all over the country and world who were so hungry for new leadership in a Christian space. One of the beautiful things that's happening in that church right now is people are talking about how important it is to tell people today what they mean to you and tell strangers mm-hmm. whose work has changed your heart that it's done so and tell people in your life that they matter. And I think that's one of the reasons we feel so strongly about commemorations in this space, that pausing to take note of our life as it's passing is one of the most important things that we can do. And as we commemorate Rachel's life, something I've been thinking about, Sarah, is that you and I talk so much about consumption versus contribution. And how many of us walk through the world as consumers, everything is great or terrible, everything is happening to us, and we're reacting to it, and if we don't like it, we're going to throw it away and buy something new. And Rachel really showed the way in being a contributor to the faith community. And I think the faith community is one of the hardest spaces to do this in because it's so easy to look at the church and say, yes, I'm up for this or no, I'm not. Yes, this is serving me or no, it isn't. And Rachel said, it's not serving us very well right now, so let's make a new space. This table has been exclusive. Let's build a new table. And that, to me, is a legacy worth fleshing out and exploring in every corner of every space we possibly can. Where in my life can I say, I don't like what this table is doing. Let me build a new one. Where in my life can I find room to tell more people how much they mean to me and why? Where in my life can I build the kind of friendships that she obviously has? When you look at what Sarah Bessie has done over the past three weeks, and you see the sense of connection that they must have had with one another, it made me think, where in my life can I build that? There are just so many things to to take from this moment, and it's filled with contradictions because over the weekend I kept thinking about her, and you always have the reaction when you realize how short and precious life is to hug your people and 
savor every moment with your family. And yet there are still moments when your kids are being annoying and everybody needs to go to bed and they need to eat and you're short-tempered and you're kind of exhausted and emotionally wrung out anyway. And so you're not Mm. being your best self. And you have this pull, like, I need to live my best life though and be my best self because I don't know how much time I have with these people. And I think that just that mess of being a person she really put great voice to and great practice to. And I'm just, I'm grateful for her example in that way. The challenge always in commemorating something as hard and final as death in any circumstance, but particularly in one as tragic as this, is You feel like you're closing a chapter and when you really want to be still with the person, still talking about them, still talking to them. And so it can feel final in a way. I mean, I think that that's always the the really tough line funerals walk is everybody needs closure. And at the same time, nobody wants closure. And the idea that you could this person is gone from your life is so painful I think I've learned over time that funerals and rituals have their place, but that commemorating and celebrating, it's just just an ongoing process. And while we do need finite processes and ceremonies to say goodbye to somebody's physical presence, that... We sometimes link the two between their physical presence and their spiritual presence or their energy in ways that can really be hurtful and unnecessary. And so, you know, I hope and I have no doubt that the people, all of us who loved her and who loved her work and who were touched by her work will go on commemorating her life and commemorating her work and celebrating it and having conversations about it. And like I said, building on it because it, she just had such an amazing impact for the short, what we know now was the short time she was here. But it's just, it's so hard, I think, in the, in the space right now to walk that line to, I keep thinking about our conversations with Megan Devine, like it's just, it's so hard because I also feel this pull of like, I don't want to wrap it up in a neat little bow and be like, well, her her work will live on. Yay. Like, it's just, I don't want to do that either. Like, it's just, there's all these pulls, I think, when something like this happens and they're hard to sort out and it's messy and it's painful and it makes us all feel so vulnerable and exposed to the hurt of being with each other because being with each other and having conversations with each other and loving each other is inherently filled with loss and risk and pain. And that's hard and complicated. And sometimes it feels, you know, why are we commemorating this this dance we do together as humans? Because it's so often filled with such pain and loss. But I don't know any other way but to just keep dancing with it, knowing the risk If anything, her life showed us the power of leaning in when there's risk, when there's danger, when there's hurt, when there's pain. I mean, I think that's what she did with the church. She said, I'm going to keep dancing. 
I know it's, you know, I've been hurt. It's you've been hurt, but I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep stepping up and taking the risk and making the brave choice and saying the brave thing and standing up for people. And the power of that is something I hope that we keep celebrating and just keep celebrating. I'm no expert. I think closure is unavailable and a stupid goal. (laughs) This is what I've decided because I think every kind of pain is is going to live on. Mm. And I think the desire to shut it down is what makes it infect us negatively. Part of what you see whenever something like this happens, especially someone who was known by so many people in a known through their work kind of way, right? So many people know Rachel Held Evans who have never met her. And when that kind of grief comes up, it tends to unearth all the other kinds of grief that are living in us. And you realize how you have all this other grief swirling around that's just been dormant. And this gives new oxygen to that grief and it all comes up again. And so it reminds me of the line from that Alanis Morissette song about grieving it all one at a time. Because it does just keep swirling up. And you have to recognize there's no closure available for this stuff. It's going to live in me and it's going to present in different ways. And there are ways in which it is going to undoubtedly enrich me. We just had a conversation not long ago about how much more interesting people are who've been through a lot of horrible things because you know more and you felt more and you can you can just kind of walk through life with a greater sense of compassion for other people. But I guess my point is, I just don't think that we should look for closure as much as we should look for evolution that there's this intense period of agony right now. And we shouldn't rush to close that up or to lessen it or to apologize for it or to make it fade away. We should just be with that agony. And then that agony will evolve into other things. And what it evolves into will differ based on our experiences and the needs of our lives. And it will become agony again several times over, especially for her family. And I think just holding room around that is all we can do. And I think a lot of what our churches and faith communities are here to do that they've done so poorly for so long is hold that room and say, Mm -hmm. are you in agony right now? Come be in agony here. This is a place where you can do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you in a space of joy right now? Good. Come be in here. We're going to be joyful with you. But when you're in agony again, come back. You can be whatever you need to be right here and now. And and I think that's what she was really challenging the church to do, to just look in the face of everything hard and difficult and horrible and unfair and unjust and not be afraid of staring it down and, and being with it. And learning what we can from it so that we can grow and change and adapt. Everyone has a family member who always tells the best stories, like the one about the first neighborhood TV or the boat trip across the Atlantic or the hilarious college prank. 
StoryWorth was founded by a guy who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories with weekly emailed story prompts, questions you've never thought to ask. At the end of the year, they'll get their stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. Strengthen your family bonds and get to know your loved one in a whole new way. Purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. They simply reply to this email with their story. All stories are private and only shared with family that you choose. After a year, their stories will be bound into a beautiful keepsake book. So I split up the stories among multiple family members. The questions are totally ones you would not think to ask. It's my favorite part of StoryWorth because I'm like, yeah, I do want to know where you were born and what your childhood school was like and all these different questions they ask. But... I once asked my grandmother, what's the most expensive thing you ever bought? And she said, my full-length mink coat. And I was like, do you love it? And she was like, no, I hate it. And I said, can I have it? And she gave it to me. Now, I cannot promise you that story worth will result in you owning a full-length mink coat. I'm just telling you, it leads to awesome conversations and opportunities. For $20 off, visit storyworth.com slash life when you subscribe. That's storyworth.com slash life. All right, there are times when wearing a bra feels like a punishment. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Harper Wilde has heard me complaining and said it's time to make wearing a bra easier. Harper Wilde offers free at-home try-on. It's a no-risk, no-fitting room process in the comfort of your own home. Find your perfect size and only pay for bras you keep. Shipping is covered both ways. Harper Wilde bras were designed with you in mind. There's no need to choose between never-ending colors and patterns and lace. Just smooth, supportive coverage that comes in three shades of nude and looks great under any outfit. The attainable price and bundles make it easy to replace your entire bra drawer. You'll have bras to wash, bras to wear, and bras to spare. Plus, Harper Wild donates a portion of their sales to organizations dedicated to empowering women. I love to like just they have like a basic and a push-up and a strapless. So I don't have to feel like I'm constantly in danger of making the wrong choice and have that sort of decision fatigue. Also, they have some really cool design features on their bra. They have a a hook to make any bra like T-strap so you can hook it in the middle so it's not showing on the end. It's just built into the bra, which I think is really, really, really smart. I love that feature. So if you want to try out Harper Wilde's bras and their amazing try-on at home experience, go to harperwilde.com slash life to get started today with a free at home try on and get a free bra wash bag as well. If you have a bra, you need a wash bag and now you can get one free. Make sure to select three bras to try on and don't forget to add the wash bag to your cart too. That's harperwild, W-I-L-D-E dot com slash life to try on three bras at home for free and receive a free gift. We are now going to commemorate her life in the best way we possibly can, which is to share her with you. We had an amazing conversation, like Beth said, about her book Inspired on Pantsu Politics, and we are going to share that conversation now here on The Nuance Life. Can you tell our listeners about this beautiful book Inspired that you've written and what inspired you to write it? Oh, thanks. Well, thanks for having me. Like I've said in the past, I am a fan of this podcast. It, I feel like it taps into my better self, which is important these days. So thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here. Um, yeah, so I wrote Inspired because I wanted to write about the Bible. I've been, I grew up uh, in a conservative evangelical environment and grew up loving the Bible, 
memorizing large portions of it before I was 11. Uh, I was the president of the Bible club in high school. So, you know, I was the cool kid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was like the the, the person who could win all of the sword drills and uh, which is where it's like a competition where you see who can find the Bible verse the fastest in your Bible. So, yeah, I was I was steeped in uh, scripture from an early age. And then as a young adult, as so many people experience, I just started to question whether the Bible actually had anything relevant <laughs> to say to my life. And if it it became more of a um, stumbling block, really, uh, in my faith experience, I just was having a lot of doubts about my faith to begin with. And then it felt like when I opened the Bible, I would just have even more <laughs> Uh, questions because, you know, the Bible was written in a patriarchal culture and there's assumptions about, um, you know, the nature of the universe and uh, men and women and slavery and and that are all there. And it just seemed like there's these violent stories about the conquests of, of indigenous people. And I just, I wasn't sure if there was anything in the Bible that I could cling to, uh, for hope. Um, especially in this particular, at this cultural moment. So um, it was a few years of just really digging and, and, and learning to read the Bible differently and learning to approach it differently uh, that led me to writing uh, this book, Inspired. Um, and a big turning point for me was just encountering Jewish interpretations of Scripture mm-hmm. and uh, the just the Jewish posture ter- towards reading the Bible is very different than Christians tend to approach it. And that's because uh, Jews sort of see the Bible to see Scripture, see their sacred texts as an invitation into conversation. Uh, and they see it as a conversation starter. Sometimes Christians tend to look to the Bible to be a conversation ender. You know, like mm-hmm. the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Uh, and so uh, just encountering Midrash and rabbinic tradition, uh, just Jewish ways of engaging scripture really helps me see that um, that bringing my doubts and my questions to the Bible is okay. Like you, I'm meant to do that. Um, and that that's kind of part of what makes um, engaging the Bible so important and so interesting is that we all come to it with different assumptions and um engaging it with other people and um, with the perspectives of other people around us can make us, um, I don't know, see it in some really exciting and interesting new ways. So I also spent a lot of time reading uh, womanist interpretations of scripture uh, and womanists are scholars, uh, black women uh, who approach the Bible from the perspective of um you know, African-American experiences. And so their interpretations of like the story of Hagar from the, uh, from Genesis, you know, Hagar was an Egyptian and a slave and who was forced into surrogacy by Abraham and Sarah. And so black women have found resonance with the story of Hagar in a way that I never thought about before. Uh, and then of course, just reading the prophets and revelation and all of um, so many different parts of the Bible from the perspective of um, liberation theology kind of showed me how to think about the Bible at this cultural and political moment in the U.S. and um, how the, just the wealth of um, inspiration and direction that we have in the Bible about how to resist faithfully and how to resist corrupt governments and corrupt people and leaders uh, with faithfulness and creativity and even humor. Uh, Like Mm. the story of Esther is kind of a comical 
um, satirical, kind of a dark common comedy, Tarantino style <laughs> with violence and everything uh, that, that looks at the question of like, how can we respond to um, powerful, egotistical, patriarchal, <laughs> misogynistic, racist men <laughs> uh, in, in a way that is uh, wise and that's funny and um that's faithful and courageous. So yeah, that's a kind of a brain dump there, but yeah, there were a lot of reasons why this seemed like the right book to work on at the time. Um, and then, you know, since then it seemed even more relevant and I'm glad it seems to be resonating with people, but it just, yeah, kind of tells the story of my own experience with scripture and then brings in the stories and experiences of other people and other scholars, uh, to hopefully help people see that they can read the Bible with their, mind and their heart intact. You don't have to check your brain at the door when you open the Bible. You don't have to check your doubts or your skepticism or your imagination or your creativity at the door, that the Bible invites us to bring all of those things with us in our reading of it. I identify so much with your faith journey and the, in the, that you describe in many of your books you know, I, I read the whole Bible in high school and I'd sort of just relegated it to my secret weapon at trivia contest because it's a super helpful thing to know in trivia contests, <laughs> the books of the Bible and the stories of the Bible. But I just, I think as my faith grew and I realized I had all these amazing people say, hey, you don't have to think about church in the way that you were brought up. You don't have to think about faith in the way that you were brought up. That is not the only approach. This book was so revelatory for me because you were saying, hey, this is, there is not one way to read or think about the Bible. And I thought what was so brilliant in particular is your sort of um, exploration of stories and their relationship to truth. And I think for so long, the only approach I was given to the Bible is these stories are truth. These stories are truth. That's it. That's the end of the story. As opposed to what I feel like you're talking about in, in this book, which is stories don't have to be true to illuminate truth. And I feel like that is so relevant, not just in how we read the Bible, but in this particular political environment, when we are having such difficult conversations about Mm. stories and why they're important and why they're powerful Mm. and also the importance of truth. Can you just speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, and a lot of it depends on, you know, what do you mean by true? Uh, Mm -hmm. Because some people will say, well, if you don't interpret Genesis one and two as a scientific historical text about the origin of the universe and of mankind, well, then you must not believe it's true, which I think is actually kind of unfair to the people who first received these stories, uh, for whom these stories were important and crucial to their sense of national identity. And, and these were people who lived in an ancient Near Eastern culture and so had ancient Near Eastern uh, assumptions about cosmology. So when mm-hmm. we come along right now, you know, in our per- very particular cultural, scientific, historical moment and say, well, they have to, this has to mean what we understand science and history in order to be true, we're actually centering ourselves and our own cultural moment when that's really not the point of these texts. Um, I mean, I believe the point many biblical scholars would say the point of these stories has a lot more to do with the story of Israel uh, and where they were uh, at that historical moment uh, than it has to say about, you know, how we're going to teach science in public schools. You know, these are not 
it, something doesn't have to be a science text or a history text in order to be true and to point us towards truth. So I think the, one of the biggest mistakes we make when we're reading the Bible is we misidentify the genre of a given mm-hmm. text. And so that's why the whole book uh, inspired is all centered around different genres. Cause I feel like when we understand what the genre of a story is, we're less likely to make that mistake. So mm-hmm. Genesis one is not science. That is in the incorrect genre to that's assign. My favorite, to that. that is one of my favorite parts of the book that I text all the time where you're like, y'all, there's a talking snake. Okay. Like this is not a science textbook. There's a talking snake. So we all know what a talking snake means. It's a fairy tale. <laughs> right. Well, and that's the thing. It's like we have these these instincts about it that we're taught to deny because it's mm-hmm. in the Bible. You know, so it's like we have a real instinctive reaction to we understand the difference between saying once upon a time and the AP is reporting. We understand immediately <laughs> that these are two different genre classifications. Like we're working with two different kinds of stories, right? Um, but when it comes to the Bible, we have all these signals that are like, this is clearly not meant to be science or history. And yet we have been told that, well, then because this is a sacred book, it has to be, uh, which is so ironic because it's just, it's elevating um really more enlightenment Western values over anything else. And, you know, that's, again, we're centering ourselves in our own um, cultural moment when we, when we need to be careful about that. So, yeah. So the, the genre of Genesis one is not science it's not history. It's uh, it's an origin story and origin stories are important because they help us understand who we are. And we have a lot, we bring a lot of assumptions about our world and ourselves uh, into play based on what we believe to be our, our stories of origin. And so in the book, I write about how we can still embrace the stories of Genesis 1, um, stories of the Bible, as significant and important origin stories for our faith and for um, our experiences without uh, you know forcing those into categories where they don't um, belong. But yeah, there's a great quote from Neil Gaiman. He says, uh, fairy tales are more than true, uh, not because they tell us dragons are real, but because they tell us dragons can be defeated. And so sometimes you have to look at what is the, what is the, the message of this story that's um, applicable and uh, perhaps even universal. Uh, and are we paying attention to that truth or are we getting distracted by um, fighting over you know, a literalist interpretation of this particular text. And yeah, I try to write too a lot about how just the stories we tell ourselves are so important. The stories we tell as a culture are so important. The stories we tell about uh, migrant children are important. The stories we tell about power, the stories we tell about uh, ourselves, the stories we tell about American history. Uh, those There can be strange mixes of truth and fiction in those stories. And so it's really important that we uh, analyze them and think critically about them. And the same is true for the Bible. Um, we make a lot of assumptions about what these stories say and what they mean. And so investigating those with integrity is is uh, difficult, but it's really important. I think that's what's so important, as you say. It's not that stories aren't essential. It's that we have to treat them as stories. And that includes when they're coming out of our politicians' mouths. You know, like, it's not like we're saying there's no room for emotion or storytelling in politics or in, even in government. But it's like we have to recognize what's going on. Yeah, 
Exactly. Exactly. And we have to pick apart like what what of this is true and what of like think about like the story of the first Thanksgiving and how that has like so seeped into our consciousness. And yet uh, it's this weird mix of truth and fiction and propaganda and, you know, how we tell that story uh, uh, as, you know, maybe white women will be really different than how an indigenous person receives that story and understands that story and wrestles with that story. So it's just important that we are clear-eyed and um, thoughtful mm-hmm. about the stories that that guide us and shape how we see reality, because usually those stories have a little bit of truth and a little bit of fiction, a lot of projection, <laughs> a lot of assumptions. Um, and so it's it's not so much that you take it or leave it. It's just, we have to be really thoughtful about how we, um, talk about and think about and, uh, embrace the stories around us. So as you have this wonderfully curious, introspective, sophisticated view of the Bible as an invitation instead of a prescription and as a collection of artifacts in some ways that still contains magic. How do you make sense of the world that we're living in today where one very prominent story among people of of the faith that the three of us share is that our current president is an imperfect messenger, but but one who has been anointed to serve this country. I'm I wrestle with that every time I see um, a reference to that or hear that discussion. And a listener just sent us a, a Facebook post that her father had shared with her that that really articulated this is my story about this president and God and and I don't know what to do with that. It's awful. It's called the salty sailor. Have you seen it, Rachel? No. Oh, it's basically like sometimes Jesus just needs a salty sailor. Who cares if he cusses or is does bad things in his personal life? Because Jesus just needs a salty oh, sailor sometimes. I can't even. I can't even help us, Rachel. Help us. I can't. <laughs> we need help with it because that's that's not one person's view, right? Oh, and, mm-hmm. and I think it's really important to understand this is the story that's being told among a large number of people of faith right now. Oh my gosh! And I'm like, this is the thing. I used, I feel like this is what has changed in the last three years is I used to be able to understand other people's perspective. Like I didn't always agree, but I could kind of empathize and see both sides. And this is like what y'all's podcast is about. And I feel like that is getting harder and harder and harder for me with every passing day. I just, that's what's different is I don't, I genuinely don't get it. Like I have so much trouble understanding that perspective. Mm-hmm. I just don't understand it from a, I mean, if we were going to, to, to bring, you know, scripture into the, into this, and there are a lot of little stories in the Bible. And then there are some like bigger stories that cross over from book to book, era to era, genre to genre. And one of those bigger overarching stories is a story of justice in particular care for orphans, widows, for immigrants, for refugees. This is a theme. It's, it's This is not a verse that you can pick out, uh, you know, to, for proof texting the people. This is a theme throughout scripture. From the moment um, God looked at the, the Hebrew slaves and their oppression under Pharaoh in Egypt and saw them in their suffering and then brought them out of slavery. And then when God was giving, um, them, their commandments and, and setting up a covenant with these people continually said, 
remember that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, who liberated you. And so this theme of God as liberator, God of um, whose interest aligns with the oppressed is, is very common. And so it's really difficult to see how folks can um, align themselves with oppressors and with oppressive policies when that's so contrary to the thrust towards justice that we see in scripture. I mean, frankly, you know, Trump looks a lot more like the uh, misogynistic and oppressive Xerxes from the story of Esther than he does, you know, anybody else. He certainly doesn't look like Christ, um, looks a lot more like Caesar than Christ. Uh, And so, yeah, it's really, it's really difficult for me to understand that perspective, except that I I know that power is, um, is seductive and uh, we're all, we're all prone to kind of justifying the decisions we make when we feel like those decisions keep our interests in power. And I think that that's, I mean, if I were to, my analysis of the situation, having grown up in evangelical Christian subculture and and knowing that pretty well, is that that whole culture has been very primed to see itself as being oppressed and Mm. itself as being the minority in itself as being persecuted uh, because of this whole, I call it the industrial persecution complex. It's like movies and books all about how Christians are being oppressed in this country and silenced and censored, you know, all the God's not dead movies like that. There's this whole industry, the war on Christmas fueled by Fox news and, um, that 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 can, has convinced a lot of white evangelical Christians that they ha- are in the fight for their life, uh, and there's even polling that shows that white evangelical Christians believe that most white evangelical Christians believe that they face more discrimination than Muslims in America, than LGBT people in America, even than African Americans, uh, which is mind blowing. Just it's. Yeah. So we're back to we're back to stories. There's just this story that has been so internalized that Christians are um, oppressed minorities that I can that's the only way I can kind of sort of see where out of desperation um, folks will vote for and support a man who says, I mean, I remember him very clearly saying, I will make Christianity big again. I will make it safe. Uh, I will protect you. Uh, I think that that resonated. And because the story uh, is so powerful, it's just a lot of folks are just not seeing that their protection is coming at the expense of a lot of other people who were already uh, the real uh, minorities in this country. That's the only thing I, that's the only way I can make heads or tails of it is that when you're desperate, when you feel like you've been backed into a corner, you'll align yourself with whoever you think will pull you out. And so there's, it's the, this, this false narrative of being backed into a corner has Mm -hmm. made folks kind of desperate to grab at whoever is promising to help them. Well, I feel like I just finished your book after, um, right around the time that Washington post, 
piece came out about the church in Alabama. Do you know which piece I'm oh, talking yeah, about? Oh, yeah. I remember that one. Well, yeah. Oh, Lord. Um, and the, <laughs> and I realized like when I just finished your book and I love the part where you talk about that, it that the gospel is not the gospel of sin management, that it's not just about managing sins and, and doing the math so you can get to heaven. But I think for those people, that's the story. The story is not just that we're oppressed here on earth, but that there's this cosmic battle and that if you're left on earth, as a Christian, you're the oppressed, and this that the what the battle that really matters is the one taking place in heaven or hell or whatever sphere. The second, you know, like that that sort of the bit, and you hear that so much, especially if you look back on the like memes from the 2016 election. That this is a cosmic battle. This is a. It's not just that we're the oppressed minority, but the story is like this is bigger than all of us. This is about the kingdom of heaven, and this is about. And you can hear that narrative. It's like it removes all agency for what's going on mm. in your life on Earth right now, and right. it's all about. Well, the stakes are so high because it's a cosmic battle and our country is in the, the throes of this battle between the devil and Jesus and, you know, all that, that, that it raises the stakes so that you can justify anything because that's the, the story is so big. Right. And it puts so much of it, though, it, it also makes it safer because it's kind of like mm-hmm. it's this cosmic battle that's going on in these realms that we can't see or taste or right now because the kingdom of God is like this far off place we float mm-hmm. to when we die, uh, as opposed to like that is completely contrary to how Jesus spoke about mm-hmm. the kingdom, which is that it's here among us. And the crazy thing is Jesus did not say, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the people who win all the time. It's blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are, you know, and Jesus also, uh, Jesus modeled for us, you know, humility, even to the mm-hmm. point of death. So this Jesus's life was not about grasping at power, uh, no matter the cost. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, it's laughable, but it's also so depressing. It is um, depressing. It's so completely contrary to the teachings of Jesus to center power as, as our ultimate goal. I mean, uh, the apostle Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, you know, have this attitude in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who did not consider, uh, equality with God, ultimate power, a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Um, you know, this, this, this notion that, you know, the Christians were enemies of the state. They were not, um, propped up by or supported by the state. Now, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, and the Apostle Paul, who Jeff Sessions and Sarah Sanders quoted in support of their uh, abusive migrant policies, the Apostle Paul, by saying that, like, oh, well, he advocated for obeying the law, he was executed by the state, too. Like, they, <laughs> you know, it's just this, so, again, it's taking verses out of their context, out of their narrative and their story, and um, just kind of throwing them on the American people. But yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating because I'm still somebody who really loves Jesus. <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, <laughs> and I'd like to think I'm a disciple uh, and who really loves the Bible uh, to see it twisted and abused to support policies that hurt people, that hurt the very people that so often the writers of scripture were advocating for. Um, it's frustrating. It's it's frustrating to watch it happen. Um, it's frustrating to feel kind of powerless to to stop it. So all I knew to do was write a book. So <laughs> that's what I do. We writers, we we we, we write. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's been it's been frustrating to 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 see scripture twisted like that. And but at the same time, um, I wrote a chapter about this in the book 
about the people who are, you know, in the tradition of the prophets resisting and who are, you know, I think about people like Bree Newsom, who scaled the flagpole in South Carolina to remove the Confederate flag. She did that reciting scripture all the way up and all the way down. She did that as an act of faith. You know, I think about Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign um, and, you know, particularly people in the African-American community who have been uh, appealing to and living the the prophetic words of scripture for so long uh, and have done that um, for many decades. So there, there we see people distorting scripture and using it to uh, justify oppressive ideas and policies. But we also see people appealing to scripture to um, do the right thing and to lead and call people to justice. So um, I like to say, like, if you're if you're if you're looking for a weapon, you can find them in the Bible. (laughs) It was written in a very different culture and time than ours. If you're looking for verses to throw at people to hurt them, like you'll find them there. You can do that. But if you're looking for uh, to heal, you can always find the bomb. So a lot of what we're, um, a lot of how we engage scripture is what we're going, looking for, uh, you know, ask and it will be given to you, seeking you will find, knock and it will be open to you. So much has to do with how we're coming to scripture to begin with. And if we're going looking for ammunition, you know, you'll find it. But if you're going looking for, um, words of hope and liberation, and healing. Uh, you'll find those words there too. How do you interact with scripture in these frustrating times? Do you journal? Because I feel like the ways that in which I was taught to interact with scripture are based on the old way to read scripture. I'm just curious about like sort of what your practice is like. Oh yeah. Oh, my practice when I get to it. Um, we have <laughs> people often ask me like, tell me about your, your process of reading the Bible. And it's like, well, most of the time I'm reading it because I need to write about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> have a job that forces me to be spiritual. Um, but, uh, but really one thing I've been doing a lot lately is spending time in the Psalms and not the nice ones. (laughs) Cause there's some kind of angry Psalms out there that are like, Oh Lord, please take down the wicked and make them pay for all that they have done. Make them like slugs on the ground, you know, littered with salt. I mean, it's like really dramatic. I'm feeling that one. I'm really feeling that one. I have been praying the angry psalms, the cursing psalms. Um, <laughs> and I mean, on the one hand, that feels a little, that feels a little, I don't know, maybe negative. But on the other hand, it's kind of cool that God left that in there. You know, because <laughs> I see the, those angry psalms as sort of like God making space um, for, um, for anger and for um, frustration with power and frustration with abuses of power, frustration with the world and all the evil that we see in it and and all the evil we see in ourselves, all the the, the, the ugliness that we see out there, but also in our own lives. There's there's beautiful, angry, perfect words for that um, scattered throughout scripture. And I found myself kind of retreating to a lot of those these days. Um, so Psalm, the, you know, just if when in doubt, you can go to the Psalms and, and kind of find, uh, you know, find something there. Um, and then I spend a lot of time in the company of the words of Jesus, just because I've, you know, just as, as kind of a reminder of, you know, this is, we sometimes forget that Christians believe that Jesus is what God is like, um, that Jesus is, you know, it, 
we wonder often, what is God like? And if God were with us, what would God do? Well, Jesus shows us that. And Jesus spent time in the company of, um, you know, the people who were uh, outcasts and the people who were downtrodden, the people who were sick, the people on the margins of society. Um, that's who Jesus hung out with. And so returning to that is is both encouraging and challenging for me because it reminds me that I can't just retreat to words and to writing, that I'm also called to uh, spend time in the company of the people that Jesus spent time with. And so, yeah, that, that, that helps too. But I think, I think I also try to be aware of the fact that some people have been so hurt by scripture. I think particularly about my LGBT um, siblings um, and friends. Um, I think about, you know, people who, um, you know, have had doubts about their faith and have only had scripture thrown at them as a weapon in response. So a lot of people need time to come back to the Bible. And I want to always make space for that and uh, respect that, um, that not everybody's ready to come back to the Bible if it's been used and abused against them. And they may never be ready for that. But for people who are, who, who do want to try and reclaim and redeem uh, the, the Bible as part of their faith practice, I do think there's good reason to do that. And I hope that I encourage that. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm cheering you all on and I'm so grateful for what you do because it's it helps helps me process a, a lot. And so, yeah, it's an honor to, to be a part of the conversation today. We want to close today with Marianne Williamson's Prayer for the Dead. Dear God, please take the soul and spirit of this dear departed one into the sweetest corner of your mind, the most tender place in your heart that she and I might be comforted. For now she has gone, and I pray, dear God, for the strength to remember she has not gone far, for she is with you and shall remain so forever. She remains within me, for we are all in you together. The cord that binds us one to the other cannot be cut, surely not by death. For you, dear God, have brought us together, and we remain in eternal connection. There is no power greater than you. Death is not your master nor mine. These things I believe and ask my heart to register. I surrender to you my grief. I surrender to you my pain. Please take care of your servant, my dear one who has passed, and please, dear Lord, take care of me. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for The Nuanced Life. We'll be back with you next week. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuanced Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuanced Life is listener-supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuanced Life at patreon.com slash thenuancedlife. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancedlife.com, and follow us on Instagram. 